So what is a cello symphony? Actually, the title for this piece by Benjamin Britten is Symphony for Cello and Orchestra. Now, Britten chose that title, no doubt, carefully, because although he wrote several pieces with symphony in the title, there's always something else to qualify it to suggest it's not quite a symphony in the Beethoven's Brahms lineage. There's the simple symphony, the spring symphony, which is actually a choral symphony. There's the Symphonia de Requiem, which is actually based on texts from the Latin Mass for the Dead. And this work, Cello Symphony. Now, it isn't actually simply a symphony, because the cello is very prominent in the work, and his part is extremely challenging. So why not simply concerto? After all, it's got a big solo cadenza between the third and fourth movements, and it's pretty challenging writing, so why not? Well, as we'll see as this program develops, the relationship between the cello and the orchestra isn't really like any kind of concerto, at least not one in the standard repertory. You certainly don't get that kind of block contrast that you get in, for instance, Baroque concertos of the 18th century. If you think of Vivaldi's Four Seasons or Bach's Brandenburg concertos, you often get a very strongly contrasted dialogue between the soloist and orchestra, very quick exchanges or even longer, something like this. Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4. Uh, now let's turn to another composer famous for his concertos, Ludwig van Beethoven. Beethoven really dramatized this relationship between the solo and the orchestra. One of the classic examples is in the slow movement of his own fourth piano concerto. This is the movement that Liszt compared to Orpheus, the musician taming the wild beasts. What do you get are these big blocks of stern unison on the strings, and then responses from the piano, and it's very much like a kind of dialogue between extremes. Thank you. 
And following that example by Beethoven, romantic concertos make more and more dramatically of this contrast between the soloist and the orchestra. Often it ends up with something like a kind of conflict, a heroic struggle between the two, or impassioned dialogue, or maybe a love scene. That's the kind of effect that you often get in romantic concertos, in this exchange between the soloist and the orchestra. But Britain's cello symphony isn't at all like that. At the beginning, the soloist, the cellist, does seem to be struggling. It sounds like he's making a huge effort to get something moving. Imagine somebody pulling a heavily laden cart. Only gradually do the wheels begin to turn and the momentum starts moving. But it's not a question of the cellist struggling against the orchestra, more with them. They're all striving together. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to listen to that music without kind of willing the soloist along and the orchestra with him. You know, come on, you can do it. Push that weight, it'll get moving. And we've arrived at the end of that extract on A, the dominant of the home key of the cello symphony, D minor. And yet there's a real feeling, isn't there? We've arrived there as a result of a communal effort. You can hear those big, deep bass instruments like the tuba and the contrabassoon, the bass drum, all working with the cellist to get things moving. So, is the cello in the old Latin phrase primus inter pares, first amongst equals? Well, in a way, that's true. But this is actually a much more complex and subtle work even than that. Now, you'll notice the sound world, which I touched on a moment or two earlier. It's not just the colour, but the whole character of the instruments. First of all, the cello is asserting itself in huge chords around D minor and major. They're very rich chords, powerfully thrusting chords. The bow lunges up across the strings, and even, which is slightly less usual at the end, even down across the strings. This is one of the things that intensifies that sense of the cello really struggling here. At the same time, you listen to the kind of sounds that Britain uses in the accompaniment. We've got double basses, tuba, contrabassoon, bass drum, and even there are sort of in the middle of this deep, dark, rich, muddy mixture of sounds, the overtonal mess that he creates like this is even further fogged by adding a gong at the end of the extract. But again, you get this sense of the cello struggling through. You can hear everything that the cello is playing, even though there's this incredibly rich bass sound going on in the background.
You see, it may seem a little odd to have a cello playing against an orchestra in which there are so many striking and powerful bass instruments, like the tuba. The tuba has a lot to do in this piece. But actually, Britain, as ever, knows exactly what he's doing in acoustic terms, because although there are quite a lot of deep bass instruments, there's actually very few instruments in the classical tenor register of the orchestra. For instance, there's no cor anglais, there are only two horns instead of the usual four, and only one trombone. So that's the kind of the tenor register of the orchestra where the cello really shines. Britain is careful to keep the orchestral writing very clear and transparent there. And that works particularly, I think you'll notice, the way he arranges the textures. When we come to the first movement's second main theme, when at last that cart started to move forward and use a real sense of forward movement, the cello's in its very impassioned high register. So the orchestral comments while the cello is playing, they're clearly way down below. Even the weightiest comments on the brass, even though they rise towards the cello, Britain is careful to keep them out of any register in which they might clash with the cello. And so we hear it all very clearly. You can hear every note of the cello part, can't you? Even though there's quite a row going on in the background, and that really is good scoring. Although it's also an example of, I think, the strength of character of our soloist today, Tim Hugh. Certainly not an important contributor to the effect. It's interesting, this, this character of the cello writing that we've heard so far. It's very different from, say, the Elgar concerto, isn't it? Well, certainly so far it is. And also from that other staple classic, the Dvorak cello concerto. Certainly, that's partly a reflection of the character of the soloist for whom this work was written, because Britain was very much the kind of composer who was stimulated by the character of the person he was writing for. And in this case, the commissioner was the great Russian cellist, Mr. Slav Rostropovich. Everyone who knows Rostropovich called him Slava, which is a nice, uh, shorter version of the almost unpronounceable Mstislav. At the same time, it also happens to mean glory in Russian. It turns up at the key point in the Gloria of the Russian Orthodox Mass. Now, that impassioned high writing, that very strong character that the cello writing has so far, or those gritty opening chords struggling with the orchestra, those are very much the kind of style in which Rostropovich excelled. Also, at the time that Britain became friends with Rostropovich in the early 60s, he also got to know the Russian composer Shostakovich, who'd written not long before a superb cello concerto of his own, cello concerto number no. one, which in some ways is quite close to a symphony as well. That was written in 1959. Britain certainly knew it when he came to write his own cello symphony. And although Shostakovich wrote his work more as a kind of contest in true concerto style between the cello and the orchestra. Again, it was very much written with Rostropovich in mind. And we've got an example of a recording now of Rostropovich playing this in concert. I think you'll certainly hear the kind of character that Britain and Shostakovich very much had in mind when they wrote this music. It's especially gritty. And towards the end of this extract from the Shostakovich, the cello part is actually written on two staves. And you'll hear why, I think, when we, we hear this passage. <laughs> ¶¶ 
well-deserved applause there for a truly phenomenal player. Actually, that bit at the end, just before the end, where you go, yum, tadalum, tadalum, which actually sounds like four cellos rather than one, Russian friends and colleagues tell me that at that point, Rostropovich would frequently seize the bow with his fist and actually hit the strings with it. And that was exactly the kind of way that he wanted to produce this extraordinary, gritty, heroic, struggling sound. Now, it's not at all hard to find examples of how Rostropovich's personality affected Britain's writing in the cello symphony, and I'll be talking to Tim a bit about that later. You can certainly hear it in the central section of the first movement of the cello symphony. This is the passage that normally in textbook terms we call the development section. There's also a passage here where Britain has to write for the cello on two staves because there are so many notes going on at the same time. But then there's an interesting reversal of roles when we get to the return of the opening theme. Do you remember those struggling, those gritty chords that the cello played right at the beginning of the piece when I suggested this was like someone trying to drag a cart into motion. At the same time, we heard these deep swirling sounds from the contrabassoon and these deep low bass notes from the tuba. What Britain does when we get to the return of this idea is he turns it back to front or on its head. The cello plays the tuba's heavy descending scale and the contra's cloudy gurgling up and down runs, while the orchestra, the woodwind in particular, play the chords that Tim played at the beginning. Now, this is the kind of reversal of roles you wouldn't normally get in a concerto. It perhaps makes a little bit more sense in symphonic terms. So a neat reversal of roles. The woodwind and the pizzicato strings take over the cello's original chords. The cello takes over the deep gurgling and plopping songs that the tuba and the contrabassoon made at the beginning of the piece. But still, there's that sense that the orchestra and the cello are working together, not against each other. It's still a communal effort that's going here, and it still, I think, justifies the use of the term symphony, which, after all, one of the original meanings of the term symphony was simply sounding together, symphony, which is certainly one thing that the cello and the orchestra are doing in this work. 
Well, I mentioned Shostakovich a moment or two ago, and Britain and Shostakovich became huge admirers of each other and dedicated works to each other and certainly had strong influences on each other's music. They had much in common musically to start with, of which we'll be hearing more later. But they also had something possibly a bit deeper in common because both of them lived in worlds where, to a certain extent, they had to be guarded about how they expressed some of their innermost personal thoughts and feelings. There was Shostakovich in Stalin's Russia, as we now know, deeply, deeply unhappy and pained about the cost of the imposition of Soviet communism on his own country, and yet having to express what he felt about it in careful, oblique, riddling terms so that the authorities weren't too obviously made aware of what it was that he was trying to say. At the same time, Benjamin Britten was a homosexual in a country where, for most of his life, homosexuality was still illegal. It certainly was in 1963, at the time he wrote the Cello Symphony. And in fact, Britain had been interrogated by the police at his home in Oldborough not long before he wrote this piece. No doubt the memory was still fresh. And that certainly seems to have left its mark on the way that Britain expressed some of his most abiding concerns, even in his operas. Now, I've no startling revelations about the cello symphony when it comes to hidden codes or meanings, but there are passages in this work where I do think that there may be some kind of bearing on some of Britain's deepest preoccupations. One of the most poignant moments in all Britain is the song in the opera, The Turn of the Screw, sung by the little boy Miles, the Marlowe song. This is a little boy. And the whole question about Miles' role in the opera is, how innocent is he? This is a little boy who seems to be menaced by the ghost of a former manservant, Peter Quint. Again, or is he? Is this ghost a figment of the governess's overwrought imagination? Or is he simply a projection of all that this little angel, this innocent little boy, feels, but which is considered unacceptable? For instance, burgeoning sexuality. Perhaps Turn of the Screw is Britain's most revealing work. And the song that Miles sings at the heart of one of the scenes is one of the most poignant moments, as I said, in all Britain. It's a simple but desperately sad little song. It's based on an old schoolboy rhyme that some of you may remember, a rhyme that was taught to teach the meaning of the Latin word Marlowe, I'd prefer to or I would rather be. And this is how it occurs in the middle of a simple Latin lesson in the middle of the opera.
Marlowe, I would rather be in an apple tree than a naughty boy in adversity. Well, little boys are naughty, aren't they? It goes with the territory. So why does Miles, or is it Britain, make it sound like such a terrible, hopeless, and utterly lonely thing to be a naughty boy? Partly because, in the context of the opera, the, he's surrounded by people who can't contemplate the idea that he could ever be naughty. It's a terrible thing for a child to live up to. But keep in mind those thirds that he sings, that interval that Miles sings Marlowe to. Da, 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 dum, da, 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 dum. And listen to the coda of the Britain Cello Symphony's first movement. There's exactly the same use of those falling thirds. And again, that kind of keening, lamenting quality. I don't think this can be just a coincidence. I can certainly hear those lamenting falling thirds of Miles's Marlowe, Marlowe song in that. And it certainly is uh, interesting the way that Britain scores it as well. So it even sounds almost like an approximation of a boy's voice on the woodwind at that stage. Certainly it's a very haunting passage. But one of Britain's abiding concerns throughout his work, right from his earliest days right through the end, was this whole question of innocence and whatever threatens it, the corrupting influence, the endangering influence. And there are plenty of passages in this work where you can see in instrumental terms that he's returning to this theme and examining it in different ways. For instance, there's a rather good example when we get to the second subject, the return of the second theme in the recapitulation of the first movement. Here's what Britain almost writes, except we've taken out one vital ingredient. you could listen to that without guessing that anything was missing, couldn't you? It's a very tender, very poignant, rather touching moment. But we've just taken out one element, as I said, some rather weird staccato interjections from trombone and tuba, which sound strangely alien in the middle of that sweet, sad lament, perhaps a mocking element or even a threatening element. Thank you. 
It's one of those extraordinary passages where Britain manages to suggest that something's not quite right. It's almost like that old idea of the worm in the bud, or if you know the wonderful serenade for tenor, horn and strings, the poem, The Sick Rose, that he sets so memorably, O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flieth by night in the howling storm hath found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love doth thy life destroy. It seems to be a poem, a theme to which Britain returned again and again in his work, and I can't help hearing echoes of it in passages like that, or indeed in the beginning of the second movement, the scherzo, because again, this seems to have an awful lot in common with that kind of weird, nocturnal, furtive world of a lot of the opera, The Turn of the Screw. It's marked presto inquieto, very fast and restless, although you could certainly guess that, I think, from the character of the music. Again, at the beginning, you'll notice the cello emerges from bass sounds, this time a low bass clarinet and a low bassoon. But there's something strange about the muted, soft brass chords. Every now and again, this rapid, fleeting, furtive activity seems to stop as though it needs to pause and look around itself for a moment before it goes on. It's as though the music's on watch. And that strange kind of restless stop-start movement goes on all the way through the outer scherzo sections of this movement. And there's even a different kind of strangeness in the central trio section. Here we have more keening wind chant lines, and again, on the interval of the third. At one point, they're even joined in by a high contrabassoon, which is quite extraordinary sound. The contrabassoon isn't normally asked to play quite so high or melodically in this part of his register. It's the last sound we'll hear in this extract, but it's quite distinctive. And again, the tiny condensed recapitulation of the scherzo section intensifies this scurrying, whispering, furtive quality. It reminds me of the ghost Peter Quint's words in the opera The Turn of the Screw, where he describes himself as that life that goes on when the candle is snuffed out. And there's certainly a suggestion of that in this writing. First of all, we have slithering sulponticello strings. Sulponticello is the effect when the strings play with their bows very close to the bridge, and it gives a rather glassy, metallic sound with rather less obviously determinate notes. At the same time, the cello's playing harmonics, another eerie, fluting, nocturnal kind of sound.
humorous light touch on the surface, suggestion of something very much darker and deeper going on in the background. It's very Benjamin Britten. The slow movement, the third movement of the cello symphony, is a rather strange business too. Again, we find the cello as the lead singer in a communal group, this time in a very obviously elegiac theme. And again, you'll notice those falling thirds from the Marlowe song, da, da, dee, da, very much part of this melodically. But before we hear the cello and the orchestra join in this elegiac song, we hear, first of all, a kind of introduction on the timpani, hushed drum taps, unmistakably funereal in character. And yet the timpani's contribution doesn't quite seem to fit with the rest of ensemble. There's something, as it were, about its comments that's insinuating or even downright disruptive about it, as though it's not part of this ensemble. The cello and the orchestra are together, but the timpani stands somewhere else, interrupting the activity. At the heart of this third movement, there's another mysterious, riddling passage that invites you to make of it what you will. The cello plays a very high tune, a tune very high up in its register, an almost innocent little tune, again, almost like Miles's little riddle, his little Latin song from the opera The Turn of the Screw. But again, the accompaniment, particularly in the strings, is weirdly suggestive. It has that kind of nocturnal, haunted quality that Britain could create so effectively. At the same time, there's a fabulous bit of scoring in the counter theme. You'll hear the horn playing a melody against the cello, which is in very free rhythms, almost as though he's improvising. And every now and again, some of his notes are picked out by another very distinctive sound, a vibraphone.
That use of the vibraphone there, just picking out the odd note in the background, is something that definitely left a mark on Shostakovich. I mentioned that how Britain and Shostakovich influenced each other. If you listen to Shostakovich's last two symphonies, the 14th and the 15th symphonies, you'll hear Shostakovich using the vibraphone in a very similar way. Clearly, he was inspired by examples like that. We'll hear more of that theme, much more of that theme, that Tim played there later on. But just for now, in this third movement, that unsettling little nocturnal reverie is interrupted by a baleful version of the first theme of the third movement, now led by the solo trombone. Now, I heard that often listening to this piece, and I used to think to myself, that reminds me of something. I couldn't for the life of me think of what it was until I was actually preparing for this program and suddenly it became quite clear to me what it reminded me of. A very famous theme from a very famous opera. This. Britain's theme is almost exactly an inversion of that. And what is it? It's the curse motive from Wagner's The Ring. And again, those contributions, those unsettling, anarchic, disruptive contributions from the timpani in this movement, which get more and more complex and active as they progress, it suddenly struck me that they also reminded me of something from The Ring. This, for instance. That's the motive that's sometimes called the Annunciation of Death, plays a big part in Siegfried's funeral music in Goethe-Demmerung. Now, I know that they're not exactly quotations in the Britain, but there's a certainly a strong resemblance there, a kind of familiar resemblance, and Britain would certainly have known them. And there's this interesting connection, I think, not just musically, but in the nature of the theme itself. Because what are the curse and that death motive about in Wagner's Ring? They're about the corruption of innocence, something that's innocent and pure, the Rhine gold that's corrupted by human greed and lust. Again, that theme that obsessed Britain throughout his life. How fascinating that he should seem to be, and I say seem to be, evoking memories of them in this third movement. Well, certainly I said that the timpani in this movement seems sometimes to be a little bit out of sync with what the rest of the orchestra are doing. And that becomes particularly marked when we come to the cadenza, because this is not at first a purely solo cadenza. The orchestra stop, except for the timpani. And as the soloist goes on, beginning to develop his meditation on some of the ideas we've heard already in the symphony, the timpani continue playing that repeated rhythm, that funereal drum tap rhythm in the background, fading gradually into the distance. But there's a suggestion they haven't really gone away. They're still there somewhere pervasively in the background.
Thank you, Tim. And now this is the passage, I think, to bring in our soloist as conversationalist as well as player, because there are quite a few questions I'd like to ask him about this piece. The cello writing in this cadenza, it's not really what you might expect of a concerto cadenza, is it? It's not prominently about technical display, or, or that's my view as an outsider. Would you agree with that? The difficulty lies in, in the part writing, because he likes to interweave various of the melodies that he's created and you have to play them both at the same time, sometimes quite close together, the, the fingering. Mm -hmm. And it is awkward, especially when it gets louder, to, to have the power on, on the lower strings to do two parts. Is, that's where it becomes difficult. It's so here yeah. from... This is a passage where he really yeah. is a cello symphony, isn't it? It's a symphony yes. for cello. And there's a passage in this cadenza which, which rather fascinates me because we've talked a bit about that drum rhythm. There's a passage where you take it over, don't you? I have to play the... symphonic, you've taken even this disruptive timpani element and drawn it, as it were, into your sphere. Would you say this cadenza is really the key point in this symphony? Because that's how it feels for me. I think it's, it is a component in it. I mean, the, he wasn't the only composer to, to do that. You know, Ravel used to, to use um, in Scheherazade. There's, there's a lot of, of cadenzas within the orchestra which mm. are accompanied. And I think that's, that was very much becoming the freer part of composition yeah. and Lutislawski was making sort of repetitions that were ad-lib yeah. at the same time so it would, it would never be quite the same. No it certainly isn't here but I think we ought to turn really to the finale now because this is what as it were emerges from your extraordinary deliberations in the cadenza and from that seemingly innocent little tune that very delicate high tune that you played a moment or two ago at the shadowy heart of this third movement because it now steps that tune as it were fully into the light center stage not on the cello but on a very confident bright sound a solo trumpet while the cello provides a kind of striding accompaniment in the background. Well, this is certainly a change of mood, isn't it? Suddenly very bright major key, a very confident-sounding trumpet there, and the cello, as it were, supporting this very strongly in the bass. 
then the cello, then finally singing out very confidently in fourths at the end there. But Britain has that ability, as so often in this piece, to suggest that something's not quite all right here. Because this last movement is a gigantic set of variations, or gigantic in effect rather than in duration. It's called a passacalia, which is a term for a, a dance form originally, in which a movement is based upon repetitions of a ground bass. And the ground bass is the figure that you heard the cello playing there. What happens at the beginning of the first variation is that the first and second violins enter with some rather frenetic figures in a rapid six beats against the theme's four beats in a bar. Now, one thing about the effect of that passage you can't grasp from just hearing an extracts like this is the fact that the violins are quite a startling sound at this point, because I don't think there can be many symphonies in which the violins are asked to do less than they are in this symphony, which is a real reversal of roles in orchestral terms, and one that, uh, I was talking to the violins earlier, they seem perfectly happy with to get a bit of a rest for a change. But the effect of them suddenly bursting in with that extraordinary frenetic writing after their contributions have been so muted and so much in the background before is very striking, as you'll discover when we hear this finale in context. The variations get wilder, they get faster and more frenetic, and then comes a moment of hush with a very free cadenza-like variation for the cello dominating again, and more of those vibraphone chords bringing a chilly reminder of that rather ethereal, quiet, mysterious, ghostly passage at the heart of the third movement.
Very striking what happens there to those heroic striving forths from the end of the main theme. Dum, ta dum, ta da, bum, bum, which sounded so positive and defiant at the beginning. They seem to lose gradually that sense of positiveness and defiance in that passage until at the end, that little comment from the bassoon, Britain very carefully makes the forths fall, droop downwards lugubriously, as though something of that heroic resolution has finally sort of ebbed into the sand at this point. Well, the cello and the orchestra do rouse themselves magnificently, and the music builds to that triumphal hymn-like coda, with everybody finally coming together on that wonderful D major chord at the end. But is it triumphant? It can seem a bit cut short in performance. It's a fascinatingly open ending, in a way. It invites you to make of it what you will. There's no right answer, and it's up to you to decide whether you think that this is ultimately a positive piece of music or not, or whether it's a more ambiguous ending. There'll be an opportunity for you to decide for yourself in a moment when we hear Britain's Cello Symphony complete. But before that, has anybody anything they'd like to ask or points they'd like to raise? If so, do put up your hand. It's interesting to me that uh, when you listen to Britain, every piece of his music is quite unique. He doesn't seem to have a signature. He's so innovative that it's not familiar. It's a challenge. All his music is a challenge. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think that every single one of his great works has its own unique sound world, if you know what I mean. And uh, very typical of that is the way, for instance, that he's arranged the orchestra in this. In a way, it's a classical orchestra with double woodwind, two each of horns, trumpets and timpani. But the business of having just one trombone, having a bass tuba, having a contrabassoon, having the bass clarinet and the slow movement, they add a very distinctive sound to this. And also that sparing, very economical use of the first and second violins. It shows that he really did think every time he wrote, what can I get out of this familiar instrument, the orchestra, that sounds new? I don't think he was ever the kind of composer who was interested in novelty for its own sake. I think it was just that he liked to approach each piece with a clean canvas, as it were. And I know you're quite right about that. He knows exactly what he's doing at each point. And each of the works that he called symphony, there's no way of confusing them, is there? Because the sound world is so completely different. But he just had one of those, I think, wonderfully fresh oral imaginations. I don't think there's ever such a thing as a routine piece of Benjamin Britten. I notice you nodding there, you'd agree with that. Yes. Is anybody else anything they'd like to ask or a point? Yes, gentleman down here. Um, I love Britain, right? I think Britain was a great guy. <laughs> and um, I think it's interesting what you're saying earlier on about his affinity with Shostakovich, but I think he also had a great affinity with the music of Schubert. Insofar as a lot of Schubert's music's genuinely tragic, which also Britain's music is. I tried to get into this work a few years ago and I couldn't get into it. It was too mm. heavy, right? Mm. This work inhabits a tonal universe which mm. is very bleak, very dark, mm. um, and it's something rich and strange. What I just wanted to ask you was, was this work written because of fear? Because I hear fear in it all the time, right? That beautiful string passage where the, the cello was playing with the strings, and then there was the brass interjections, which was just upsetting it all, right? To me, maybe after the police came to his house, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe he just wrote this, you know, because of fear and anger. Mm. I don't know, what do you think? Oh. <laughs> I think you've answered most of your own question there. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Um, 
Britain is marvellous at presenting a smiling facade sometimes, but underneath you sense all sorts of darker emotions going on. So many people feel this, it can't just be our projection onto the music. And if you look at the subject matter of his song cycles, for instance, so often they're about haunted subjects, about insomnia, which apparently he suffered from terribly. There's that wonderful setting in the nocturne of the Wordsworth sonnet where the man lies sleepless in his bed as he realises, it came to me in what world I was. And I think Britain was always troubled by those kind of thoughts. He was always sensitively aware of just what a difficult world this was to live in for some people. And your connection with Schubert, I think, is absolutely spot on. I think Britain said on one occasion that he thought that Schubert was absolutely his favorite composer. And uh, like Thomas Mann said that he would want to hear the quintet, the string quintet played on his deathbed. Schubert, too, is a composer who can seem so smiling and serene. And that, that Austrian word, gemütlich, you know, cozy, warm, convivial, he knows how to do that. And yet, one of his greatest works is the song cycle Winterreiser, which Britain and Piers performed, which is one of the bleakest things ever composed. I think that the deeper you get into Britain, the more you sense that he has a very little hope sometimes for the human condition and sees music as one of the few truly redeeming things that we have to comfort us in this life. It's time now to hear this symphony for cello and orchestra by Benjamin Britten. Our performers today are the soloist Tim Hugh, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra leader Bernard Doherty, conducted by Tahuo Yuasa. <laughs> 